The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 17, 2013. I'll start this week's podcast with general news about the status of the HUD budget, as well as other appropriations bills, and the possibilities of continued resolution by the September 30th end of the federal fiscal year. From there, in our local housing tax credit segment, I'll discuss the Emerging Issues Task Force meeting last Friday the 13th, in an effort to make a final ruling on amendments that would affect gap accounting for the low-income housing tax credit and potentially other tax credit investments. Then, turning to renewable energy tax credit news, I'll alert listeners to what a Treasury official said last week about additional guidance on the production tax credit that could be coming from the IRS. I'll also discuss the results of a study of wind farms and property values. In our historic tax credit section, I'll discuss a recent report from Missouri on the use of the state's historic tax credit. And finally, in this week's New Markets Tax Credit section, I'll alert listeners to the fact that Nebraska is now accepting applications for its state New Markets Tax Credit program. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, we turn to Congress and the end of the fiscal year. Congress returned from its August recess last week, and time is running short for lawmakers to prevent a partial government shutdown on September 30th the end of the fiscal year. At the time of this recording, Congress had yet to give final approval to any of the 12 annual appropriation bills that are needed to keep agencies operating into fiscal year 2014. Looking at the HUD budget, the House and the Senate began debating and amending their fiscal year 2014 transportation HUD appropriations bills in July, but neither chamber has moved to vote on a final passage. The House bill, H.R. 2610, comes with a funding level for HUD of $44.1 billion. The House bill includes a cut of $100 million from the Home Investment Partnerships Program. That's a cut cut that was proposed on the floor. That would reduce the funding level to $600 million. And that $100 million cut, along with $250 million from HUD's administrative accounts, would go to Community Development Block Grants, or CDBGs, funds. The Senate bill, by contrast, has a $54 billion budget. However, several proposed amendments could affect those funding levels. For instance, there's an amendment to cut funding for the home program from $1 billion to $950 million, and one to cut the CDBG program from $3.2 billion to $2.8. All of that said, it's not expected that these bills will get passed before September 30th, obviously. So on a more positive note... The House Appropriations Committee on September 10th did introduce a continuing resolution to fund the government through December 15th. The continuing resolution, H.J. Resolution 59, would help prevent a government shutdown when the fiscal year begins October 1st, and it proposes to fund the government at $986.3 billion annually. That's slightly less than the post-sequestration funding level of $988 billion for fiscal year 2013. The bill gives agencies some spending flexibility that could help 
put off furloughs in the first few months of fiscal year 2014. This CR was expected to go to the floor last Thursday for a vote, but, as you probably heard in the news, the vote was delayed in an effort to build more Republican support. I expect we'll see serious negotiations on the continuing resolution, or CR, over the next few days and in the next week, and I'll keep you posted on any progress. You can follow me on Twitter for updates between the podcasts. And as I said, it has to get completed by September 30th, and Congress is scheduled, at least the House is scheduled, to be in recess next week, but I don't expect that to happen if they can't complete the CR this week. Now I'd like to turn to rural housing. Beginning October 1st, 2013, the U.S. Department of Agriculture will begin to use data collected from the 2010 census when administering rural housing programs. The USDA was originally scheduled to start using that data on September 30, 2012. However, Congress, in March, extended a grandfather clause that enabled the USDA to use previous, previous or prior census data. Now, without congressional intervention by September 30th, either in the form of legislation or another continuing resolution, some communities that were classified as rural in the past will no longer be eligible to be treated as rural, such that they wouldn't be eligible to benefit from certain USDA programs. This would make it much more difficult to finance affordable housing in rural areas because affordable housing will lose the ability to use the national non-metropolitan median income classification in determining Section 42 rent and income limits. Now, there are some legislative efforts aimed at preventing these areas from losing their rural designations, but at the time of this recording, none of those bills had passed. The main legislation to accomplish that is the Rural Housing Preservation Act of 2013, H.R. 858, which would extend this grandfather clause for another 10 years. It has 62 co-sponsors at the time of this recording. A Senate bill, SB 766, also proposes to extend the grandfather clause for 10 years. It, though, has another provision that would increase the maximum population for rural communities from 25,000 to 35,000 residents. SB 766 has five co-sponsors. If you have any questions about this issue and how it might affect your rural affordable rental property, please contact Thomas Stagg in our Seattle office. In other Washington news, I have an update about a hearing I mentioned last week. Last week, the House Financial Services Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee held a hearing to discuss ways to reduce waste, fraud, and abuse in certain U.S. Department of Housing, Urban Development, or HUD programs. The hearing examined HUD Inspector General David Montoya's report that was set forth in the HUD Office of Inspector General's semi-annual report to Congress. In the report, Montoya outlines the need to improve the management and oversight of HUD programs. The report accounts for activities during the first half of fiscal year 2013. The report did two things. It identified more than $770 million in questionable costs and included recommendations to put $740 million of HUD funding to better use. The subcommittee found that HUD's largest programs lack proper oversight. And in a press release from the Committee on Financial Services, subcommittee chairman Patrick McHenry said he is concerned with HUD's management of the CDBG program. He said that CDBG funds often end up being used for non-housing developments, such as parks, pools, street signs, and community centers. Fiscal year 2012, the CDBG program's budget was more than $3.3 billion. 
Because of the sheer size of the program, the committee's goal is to manage the oversight of the program so funding is used appropriately. To learn more or read the report, go to www.financialservices.house.gov. In local housing tax credit news, I have an update from the Financial Accounting Standard Board's Emerging Issues Task Force. As I mentioned last week, the EITF met on Friday, September 13th, to discuss possible changes to the conditions an entity would have to meet in order to use the effective yield method for qualified low-income housing tax credit investments, most notably, no longer need a guarantee. Then we'd hoped that the task force would issue and approve revised guidelines on Friday. Unfortunately, it did not. The task force did, though, appear to agree on the use of a proportional amortization method rather than an effective yield method, although it would be proportional over the period of the tax credits and tax benefits, not just the tax credits. The task force deferred approval of revised standards to their November meeting. Now, the ITF did spend considerable time on staff's suggested insertion of, quote, no substantive participating rights, close quote, language to govern when a limited liability investor could qualify for the revised accounting treatment. The ITF ultimately directed staff to alter the language to be more consistent with the equity method of accounting guidance and not so close to the consolidation language. The task force considered also when an investor's level of involvement in a property should be determined. It asks if an investor needs to meet the criteria at the beginning of the investment or throughout the investment period. It also questioned if subsequent events, such as making a loan, change the nature and design of the entity. The task force decided that the evaluation should probably be made when, the change, when changes occur and that the conditions should be based on whether the investor continues to meet the conditions. In regards to balance sheet presentation, eight members actually voted for reporting the investment as a deferred tax asset as opposed to a general investment. Now, if the guidance is adopted, the cost of low-income housing tax credit investments could be amortized below the line even when a guarantee is not provided, obviously if certain other conditions are met, including that the combination of expected tax credits and other tax benefits exceed the total dollar amount invested. We believe that this guidance would expand the pool of potential long-term housing tax credit investors. Now, unfortunately, this deferral of a decision means many investors will be sitting on the sidelines for at least a few more months waiting for the revised guidance. Now, I note that early adoption of the proposal would be permitted as of the beginning of the fiscal year of adoption for financial statements not yet issued. Now, the task force also briefly discussed what they called analogous situations. Analogous situations could include other tax credits, such as historic tax credits, new markets tax credits, and renewable energy tax credits. And there seemed to be a general understanding among the members of the ITF that new markets tax credits were likely to be the most analogous, or at least certain structures. The task force directed staff to perform more outreach and analysis of the situation for long housing tax credits and perform more research on analogous tax credit investments. At the time of this recording, the ITF did plan to prepare a revised proposal for discussion and let's all hope approval at its November 14th scheduled meeting. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the meeting as well as the long housing tax credit industry's efforts to get the standards changed, 
I encourage you to read the notes from Novogratic blog. There's a September 13th post that reviews last Friday's EATF meeting in more detail than I'm covering here in the podcast, as well as a March 14th post that discusses the exposure draft, as well as a white paper on the subject. Also, after the November 14th meeting, I'll post another blog about the developments at that meeting. I'll also post blogs and tweet to the extent needed between now and the November 14th meeting. If you're wondering where to find Notes from the Novogratic, that's my blog. It's at www.novogratic.wordpress.com. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I have information about the possibility that the IRS will provide more guidance on the production tax credit. This information comes from a technical review session at the American Wind Energy Association Wind Energy Finance and Investment Seminar held in New York last week. Christopher Kelly of the Treasury's Office of the Tax Legislative Council said that the IRS was aware that the guidance it issued in May addressing the start of construction did not answer all stakeholders' questions about qualifying for for the production tax credit. For this reason, the IRS and Treasury are considering issuing additional guidance. The additional guidance would clarify at least two issues. First, what does continuous efforts mean under the 5% safe harbor? And does project eligibility follow the project in the event of a transfer of ownership? OWEA reported that Kelly indicated that the pursuit of a power purchase agreement would qualify as continuous efforts. Manufacturing constraints and permitting delays would be allowable disruptions of continuous efforts. And, although not required, records similar to those that Treasury required for the Section 1603 program would be helpful in demonstrating continuous efforts. He also said that Treasury and the IRS are considering a placed-in-service safe harbor. If a wind energy project is placed in service by a certain date, it would be deemed to meet the continuous efforts test. In regards to the transfer of ownership, AWEA reported that Kelly indicated that eligibility would continue. Additionally, there's no requirement, I note, for turbines purchased under supply agreement to be assigned to a specific property by a specific date. He also said that the guidance could be issued in the next several weeks, so stay tuned. Now, I should note that Kelly was not emphasized not speaking on behalf of the IRS or Treasury, and he said that additional guidance is not guaranteed. If the IRS does issue additional guidance on the PTC, I'll send out a tweet and an industry alert email. I'd also like to note, in a blog post, attorney David K. Burton of Aiken Gump said that Kelly indicated it was his understanding that the IRS would consider requests for private letter rulings on when projects. It's my hope that the IRS will issue guidance in the next few weeks, but it's good to note that requesting a private letter ruling appears to also be an option. In other renewable energy news, we have a report about the impact wind power has on home values. The number of wind farms is expected to grow in more populated regions, so it's important to look at all the potential consequences of the wind farms, including the effect on home values. In a report released last month, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory found that operating wind turbines have little to no measurable effect on home sales prices. The report looked at 50,000 homes that were sold that were near 67 wind farms in 27 counties across the country. 
All the homes were within 10 miles of the wind facilities. Researchers studied property values of homes near wind developments for periods spanning from well before the facilities were announced to well after their construction. Findings corroborated data from another report released by Berkeley Lab in 2009, which, which used a different data set. The study shows that wind facilities can be developed in more populated regions without affecting nearby home property values. This could be good news for developers that are interested in building wind farms in more populated areas as they try to overcome potential local objections. You can find a copy of the report online at the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Resource Center. In this week's Historic Tax Credit News, we revisit the Missouri Historic Preservation Tax Credit. In previous podcast segments, we've discussed the years-long debate between legislators and the possibility of lowering the Historic Preservation Tax Credit's annual cap. However, this week, we'll not be talking about possible legislative changes. Instead, we'll be talking about the use of the tax credit in fiscal years 2012 and 2013. The Missouri Department of Revenue recently released a fiscal year 2013 report that provides information on more than $512 million in tax credits that were awarded under more than 60 tax credit programs. The report shows that redemptions of the historic preservation tax credit and the low-income housing tax credit, two of the state's largest tax credit programs, are lower this year than in previous years. In fiscal year 2013, redemptions for the historic preservation tax credit were $78.8 million. A St. Louis Post-Dispatch article reported that this is $55 million less than in 2012. Low-income housing tax credit usage was $144.1 million, and this is $20 million fewer than last year or the year before. The Post-Dispatch article quoted the Missouri Department of Economic Development as saying that this market shift was a direct reflection of the state's economic activity. To read the report, go to www.ded.mo.gov. And to wrap up Historic Tax Credit News, I'd like to remind you it's not too late to attend the Novogratic Historic Tax Credit Conference in Detroit later this week. The pre-conference starts tomorrow, Wednesday, and the full conference itself begins on Thursday. You can log on to www.novaco.com events to register. In New Market Tax Credit News... The deadline, as you most certainly know, for the applications is this Wednesday, and by the time you listen to this podcast, the day may have already passed. So with that, I'd like to turn to the state of Nebraska with some state-level application information. On September 3, 2013, the Nebraska Department of Revenue began accepting applications for the New Markets Job Growth Investment Tax Credit Program. The program allows individuals, corporations, estates, and trusts as well as financial institutions and insurance companies, to claim non-refundable, non-transferable tax credits for investments in community development entities, or CDEs. The program provides a 39% tax credit on the qualified equity investment. The annual cap of the New Markets Job Growth Investment Tax Credit is $31 million. It's actually $31,094,665, to be exact. The credits can be used against income tax, premium tax imposed on insurance companies, or franchise tax imposed on financial institutions. I'd like listeners, and CDs in particular, to pay close attention to the when and where to file section of the tax credit application. Applications must be filed after the CDE has completed an allocation agreement with the CDFI fund, 
before the CDE has received cash investments from any investor in return for new market tax credits, and before the department has certified qualified equity investments of $15 million in NMTCs for any fiscal year. To learn more about the program or to download the application, go to the Nebraska Department of Revenue's website at www.revenue.ne.gov. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Next week's podcast will include an update on the status of the Dodd-Frank guidance on allowing equity investments from banks in certain tax credit investments. I'll also have the latest news from all segments of the tax credit industry. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.